This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 295th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're returning to a city that has come up in several episodes, and I've actually visited it twice, and that is Salem, Massachusetts. We're going to be talking about the various haunts along Derby Street. I absolutely love Salem. Can't wait to get back there again. There's so much history here. Of course, the focus in Salem is on the witch trials, but there's a lot more to it than just that. We're going to discuss a lot of that history on this episode. Also wanted to let everybody know that we have a new fur baby at HGB headquarters. Her name is Riley. She's a year old rescue pup that we believe is a mixture of at least Schnauzer and Jack Russell Terrier. So if you hear some running around in the background, some collars shaking or some growling and barking, that would be Riley. Now let's welcome some people into the Spooktacular crew. We want to welcome Kara with a C, Tasha, John, Thomas, Alex, Becca, Hannah, Victoria, Jeffrey, Sherry with a CH and an IE, Mark, Lisa, Joseph, and Shayla. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by John Michaels. Frederick John Bauer lies beneath a fairly normal headstone in the Cincinnati Springfield Township, but his burial container is anything but normal. Bauer was born in 1918 in Toledo, Ohio. He studied science in college and eventually went to work for Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati as a chemist. His main job was to develop methods of food storage. In 1967, Procter & Gamble developed a newfangled chip based on Bauer's experimenting. People had been complaining that chips were stale and broken. Bauer designed a saddle-shaped chip that was easily stackable. But the chip wasn't tasty, so another man named Alexander Lipa took over, and it would be his name on the patent for the chip, that we all know as Pringles. Even though Bauer didn't get his name on the patent, he is known for something else. That special chip needed special packaging, and he invented the Pringles can. He declared that the Pringles can was a revolution within the realm of snack food. Bauer died in 2008 at the age of 89. He told his children that he had a request about his burial. After he was cremated, he wanted his ashes buried inside a Pringles can. His children fulfilled his request by stopping at a Walgreens before arriving at the funeral home. The can was for the classic original flavor. Obviously, being buried inside a Pringles can certainly is odd. 
And now, This Month in History. In the month of April, on the 1st in 1800, Levi Weeks was acquitted of the murder of Julie Elma Sands, whom everybody called Elma. Elma had been found at the bottom of the Manhattan well, badly beaten and dead. This would be one of the first murder mysteries in New York and has never been solved. But Levi Weeks was indicted because he was Elma's love at the time. The couple had been intimate many times, leaving some speculating that Elma was pregnant when she divulged that the couple was secretly engaged. Elma met up with Weeks on the day they were to marry, and she was not seen alive again. A carriage driving away from the well in a hurry was said to belong to Weeks' rich brother. That brother hired the best defense for his brother, and that would be lawyers Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. The case was circumstantial, and the judge made sure to drive home that fact to the jury before he sent them to deliberate. Trials were very different at this time. All the evidence was laid out over two days, and it was 2 a.m. when the jury was sent off to come up with a verdict. They wouldn't take long, only five minutes. They voted to acquit, and Levi Weeks went off to become a very successful architect. The case and trial was controversial and a cause celeb at the time. It was the first murder trial in the U.S. to have a recorded transcript. The trial is referenced in the song Nonstop in the 2015 musical Hamilton. Long before America was America, there was Salem. The town was a successful and busy port city, but it would become an infamous location that still causes a chill to run down our spines at the mere mention of its name. Even though it was not the first spot to hold trials and hangings in regard to witchcraft, it would be the most well-known. This apparently has left behind energy that lends itself to paranormal activity. There's even more to the history of Salem that probably contributes to this spiritual residue. Based on my research, I would say that Salem has two main streets in its historic district that are the most haunted in the city. One is Essex Street, and the other is Derby Street. On this episode, we're going to focus on the history and hauntings of Derby Street. I've been to Salem, Massachusetts twice in my life, as I said before, and HGB has featured the Salem Witch Trials and locations like the Witch House and the House of the Seven Gables in episodes. This is a city that seems to be enveloped in an ethereal energy. That impression seems to be backed up by accounts of the tribes that used to live in the area that claim that the land had an energy of its own, and that energy was negative. I myself did not feel anything negative when I was there, but like so many historic cities in America, I had an appreciation for the history that penetrated nearly every building in this town. What is it about Salem that makes it seem to be such a center of paranormal energy? Is it just the energy from the violence that accompanied the Salem witch trials, or could there have been something here before the accusations started flying? Native Americans in the area seem to think so, and there are those who claim that multiple ley lines come together in Salem 
making it a powerful place of spiritual energy. Ley lines are pathways of strong energy, and that energy could be electrical or magnetic, and even in some cases, psychical. Many of these lines run under places like churches or locations like Stonehenge, the Great Pyramid, and Machu Picchu. Could these lines influence the emotions of humans or affect their thoughts? There's more to the history of Salem than just witch trials and hangings. Being a port city, it has stories of bootlegging, rum running, pirates, and brothels. So come on with me over here to Derby Street. It's a gorgeous street, lots of old buildings. I just love walking down this street. The really cool thing about this street is that you've got the water right there. This street was named for Elias Haskett Derby Sr. Derby was a very wealthy man, and there are claims by historians that he was actually the first millionaire in America. He was usually seen walking around Salem using a gold-headed cane and wearing a Sir Roger de Coverley coat. Derby had made most of his money in shipping and trading. His father had a very successful business that he inherited, and he expanded it so far that he was shipping to St. Petersburg, Russia. You can imagine that during the Revolutionary War, he had a bit of trouble with the British Navy. They intercepted his ships and nearly ruined his business as they impounded vast quantities of his rum and sugar cargo. Well, Derby was not going to take that lying down. He was losing a ton of money. So he decided to rally the men of Salem, and he equipped at least 158 vessels with weaponry, like 2,000 cannon. Men from Salem and the contiguous ports of Beverly and Marblehead manned the ships. When America eventually won the war, the news was brought from France aboard a ship that belonged to Derby, named Astria. After the war, Derby continued his trade, which had to change tactics, since during the war he operated as a privateer, which I'm sure most of you know is just basically a glorified pirate. This is when he would begin trade with Russia. America would send tar, rice, rum, and turpentine and get back hemp, iron, tea, spices, and duck, which was what they called a fine linen canvas used to make sails. The Derby Street Historic District was established in 1974, and it runs parallel to Salem Harbor. The district includes all of the buildings on both sides of Derby Street, beginning at Herbert Street and extending north to Blockhouse Square. Nearly all the buildings here are directly associated with the commerce and people from the 1760 to 1820 period which, as you can imagine, is why I love it so much, because it goes back to that period and has really maintained that feel. At the very end of this Derby Street historic district is the House of the Seven Gables. Most of the buildings are in the Georgian colonial and federal styles. So we're going to make our first stop here. This is the Old Burying Point Cemetery at 51 Charter Street. It borders Derby Street as well, which is why it's part of this episode. Of course, the first stop in any city for me is a cemetery, and like most cities, Salem has several. The cemeteries in Salem and in New England in general are some of my favorite. I love the headstones there. These are the ones that do a lot of the death head symbolism. You have the skull flying away with wings on its head. Just very cool. You don't see them like that in too many other places, and a lot of the headstones are very thin running about an inch and a half to maybe two inches in thickness, which is why they were so easily broken. There is a cemetery that borders Derby Street, and it's known as Old Bearing Point Cemetery or Charter Street Cemetery as its name for the street where one can find its entrance. The cemetery was founded in 1632, making it the second oldest cemetery in the United States. 
There are not many burials here, at least officially. That number is around 350 bodies, but as I found in Boston, sometimes a burial plot could hold several bodies stacked up on each other. They didn't have a whole lot of land to put the bodies in, so they had no qualms about putting multiple bodies in one burial and then just adding the names onto the tombstone. And they wouldn't necessarily have to be related to each other. Names from the headstones in this cemetery have found their way into the works of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Most of the headstones are hard to read and falling over in a haphazard way. There are many well-known or historical figures buried here. Eight of them are members of Hawthorne's family, including his great-great-grandfather, John Hawthorne, who was a judge during the witch trials, and he spelled his name H-A-T-H-O-R-N-E. Nathaniel added the W to his name to try to distance himself from the man. Also buried here are the poet Anne Bradstreet, architect Samuel McIntyre, witch trial judge Bartholomew Gedney, and Mayflower passenger Richard Moore. And Giles Corey's second wife, Mary, lies beneath a small white gravestone here. Giles' name appears on a plaque in the cemetery known as the Witch Trials Memorial, along with the name of his third wife, Martha. Many of you are probably familiar with the curse associated with him. I have mentioned it on previous episodes. This is where his apparition appears as a harbinger of doom. They say he called out the curse as he was unmercifully pressed to death. And if memory serves me right, he was the only one of all of those accused of witchcraft in Salem who was pressed to death. Everybody else was hanged. There are several spirits reputed to be here. The first is said to belong to the hanging judge, John Hawthorne. People claim that he shows up in pictures taken in the cemetery. There's also a lady in blue here that wears a Victorian dress, carries a picnic basket, and is usually joined by a little boy. Legend claims they both died in a tragic fire at an inn next to the cemetery on Charter Street. These spirits are usually caught as white streaks in pictures. I said it was a legend because I wasn't able to find any news reports of a fire at an inn near the cemetery, so I'm not sure that ever actually happened. Christopher Forrest wrote about a lady in white in the cemetery in his book, North Shore Spirits. The ghost itself does not typically appear in person, rather it often manifests itself in the form of orbs. It has even appeared as a slight figure in pictures taken at the site. So I guess she's different than the other woman because she's alone and has no basket. This spirit may not be readily seen in the cemetery, but she may wander to a nearby business based on reports that I've read. So you have this author who says there are people who've seen this orb. I don't know why they attribute it to a lady in white. I don't know if it has a white color to it, if it has a woman's face in the orb course we don't know is this a legitimate orb of spiritual nature or is it a bug or something else but whatever the case may be this woman seems to be different because she does show up at a place that's right next door to the cemetery and that's murphy's restaurant and bar and this is at 300 derby street it's basically at the back corner of the old bearing point cemetery and before it was murphy's it was called spirits and before that it was roosevelt's and owned by henry mcgowan That's as far back as I was able to trace the building. It's just a big brick building, pretty nondescript. And uh, that's all I was able to find out about it. So I would love to know more if there's anybody out there that knows more about the history behind the actual building where Murphy's Restaurant and Bar is located. One legend claims that a casket crashed through the retaining wall into the dining room. And I say legend because there's no verifiable evidence of that. But employees say that it really did happen and they will show you a patch on the wall that indicates some work was done to the wall. The casket is said to have belonged to a little girl. 
Now, that doesn't seem to have caused a haunting here because I haven't heard about a little girl being seen here. But it's just interesting to know that the restaurant and the cemetery are connected to each other in such a way that a casket would be able to crash through the retaining wall. The lady in white has been seen by employees at the pub and specifically former owner Henry McGowan. He said that he was alone on the second floor in the restaurant one night around 3 a.m. when he saw a female apparition looking down on him. He looked away for a minute. When he looked back, she had disappeared. There are those who wonder if this is Giles Corey's second wife, Mary. The two were said to be much in love. And the reason why they suggest that it might be his wife is because the lady in white has been seen coming from her grave. Now, as I said earlier, her spirit is not usually seen very often, so I don't know if they see this orb floating from the grave over towards Murphy's, and then all of a sudden this lady in white shows up. Not sure exactly how that works. Our next location is at 204 Derby Street, and the name of it is Bunghole Liquors. Okay, so let's just get the laugh out right now. It was very difficult for me to say that with a straight face. Yes, the official name of this liquor store is Bunghole. It's right across the street from Derby Wharf. The place looks really cool. It's got this retro neon sign and it has a fabulous history for history and ghost story lovers alike. The building originally housed a funeral parlor, but liquor always seems to have had a home here. Embalming was done downstairs, but there was more than just preserving bodies going on down there. The name Bunghole was a nickname that people in town gave to the speakeasy in the basement of the funeral home. This term is actually what they call the hole in a barrel or cask. So that's where it came from. And since I told you that this was a speakeasy, you know that it was in operation during Prohibition. People would whisper to each other on the street, I'll meet you at the bunghole tonight. (laughs) I'm telling you, if somebody says that to me on the street, I'm really going to give them a weird look and wonder exactly what are they offering me or talking about. The speakeasy had a perfect location since it was right across from the wharf. And I'll get into talking about the details of this in a little bit, but there were some tunnels there. And this is where the owner was able to easily smuggle spirits into his joint. When Prohibition ended, a friend of the owner suggested that he turn it into a liquor store, and he did just that. The second ever liquor license was issued to Bunghole Liquors, and they got rid of the funeral parlor accoutrements like the embalming tubes, which were closed up in the walls. The tunnels were also sealed. But something has remained from that past, and it is confirmed by both patrons and employees. There are several spirits here. An assistant manager named Brandon O'Shea had his own experiences. When he started working at the store, he was a total skeptic. People told him it was haunted, and he would just scoff at him. But he was in the bathroom, and the light had gone out. So here he is in the dark, and suddenly he feels a cat rubbing against his legs. He flew out of the bathroom and asked a co-worker if there was an animal in the store. Of course, there was not, and when they looked in the bathroom, they saw nothing. So people are pretty sure that one of the spirits here is a ghost cat. Brandon's not the only one to have it rub up against his legs. He went on to say, when you're working alone, you always see weird things here. I'm telling you, I'm the last person ever to believe in this stuff, but something is here. There are those who claim that there's a residual energy left over from the speakeasy and that disembodied sounds and voices are heard, 
from that bygone era. Clinking of glasses, whispers to each other, dancing, music, all of it can be heard in the basement. And in the basement, there's a camera that has picked up white flashes of light that no one can explain. The only other apparition that's been seen here is said to belong to a woman. New Year's Eve of 2013, the store had a big rush. An employee saw a woman walk behind the wine racks and then go out back. He couldn't pursue her to see why she was going out the back. He was sure another employee would run into her. That person saw nothing. They saw the woman in the store again two hours later. One of the employees actually bumped into her. When he looked up to apologize, there was no one there. Why there would be a woman haunting this? Your guess is as good as mine, but since it was a former funeral parlor, perhaps this is where her body had been at one point. At 160 Derby Street is the Salem Maritime National Historic Site. This was the first National Historic Site established by the National Park Service, and that happened on March 17, 1938. The maritime history in Salem is rich. A lot of people, when they talk about Salem, they just talk about the witchcraft, but really it's their maritime history that they should be known for. Shipbuilding and trade flourished, and obviously some of that trade was for smuggled products. Should I say, a lot of it was for smuggled products. There was a ton of privateering or pirating or both, wink wink, going on in this city. Derby's son had a few tunnels built leading from the wharf to various buildings in downtown Salem in 1801. The goods would be brought up through trap doors, some of which can still be seen in various historic buildings today. Those tunnels are said to be haunted. And as I talk about some of the things that went on in those tunnels, you'll get a feeling for why they could be haunted or why there would be some residual energy here. This complex has several points of interest and several hauntings. We're mainly going to focus on Derby Wharf and the old Custom House. Derby Wharf was built by Elias Haskett Derby Sr., for whom it's named, of course, in 1783. The original wharf was shorter, but was extended to one mile in length in 1809. The Derby Wharf Light Station was built in 1871. The white and black lighthouse is fairly small, only standing 20 feet tall, and it has a unique square design. For most of us, when we see a lighthouse, we're used to seeing a conical shape. This one is square. The light for this one is also a bit different in that it is actually red, and it flashes every six seconds and can be seen for four nautical miles. There was never a keeper's house here, and it was tended by a lamplighter until it was automated in the 1970s. The lighthouse has stories of at least one ghost, but there could be two of them. People who visit the wharf claim to see full-bodied apparitions of sailors from a bygone era, and there are cold spots even on warm summer days. There was one woman who claimed to feel an icy tap on her shoulder as she walked the wharf, and when she turned around, there was no one there. Many claim that the spirits they see belong to pirates and that they seem to be residual. There are others who believe these shadowy figures are crewmen from the Andrew Johnson, which was literally ripped apart by the schooner the Haskell during a hurricane. Jeff Belanger, who hosts the New England Legends podcast, and if you don't listen to that, I encourage you to subscribe to it. I really enjoy it. He wrote, They saw dark, shadowy figures rising out of the sea. There were ten of them in all, and as they reached the Haskell, the watchman could see that the figures looked like men. The dark race reached their hands over the rail of the schooner and climbed aboard. Their eyes were black, like hollowed-out holes, 
and they wore dark and oily sealskins for clothes. The phantoms quickly took up positions around the ship, began to go through the motions of casting lines, rigging sails, and setting the anchor. So were these the men who had been aboard the Andrew Johnson who died? And are they sometimes seen around the lighthouse there? The other main structure here is the Custom House, which faces Derby Wharf. This structure was built in 1819 and features a carved wooden bald eagle that is painted gold sitting on top of the brick Federalist-style building. Nathaniel Hawthorne had worked here at one time as a surveyor, and he actually uses the location in the opening pages of the Scarlet Letter. The Custom House issued permits to land cargo and certification for ship measurements. This was also where merchants paid custom duties. Those duties were very important because they were a main source of government revenue before there were taxes. Spirits here seem to belong to captains of ships, and disembodied whispers are heard as though they are discussing the treasures they have aboard their vessels. Disembodied footsteps are also heard, and strangely, flickering lights appear throughout the building, but disappear when approached. I should mention that the Derby House is also within this complex. There's no hauntings there, but it was the home of the Derby, so it's very historically significant. Elias Derby built the house in 1762 as a wedding present for his wife. They lived there for the first 20 years of their marriage and had seven children there. Derby called it the Little Brick House. He sold it in 1796 to Captain Henry Price, who built the West India Goods Store next to the house around 1800. The princess stayed until 1827, and then the house passed through various hands and had many uses, some of which were tenement apartments where the Polish community lived while working in the nearby mills. In the early 20th century, the house passed into the hands that would preserve its history. And you can tour that, of course, today. The Witch's Brew Cafe is at 156 Derby Street, and right near it, at 148 Derby Street, is Mercy Tavern. They both stand across from the Derby Wharf, which made them prime locations for, what do you think, brothels? Yeah, great place to have brothels. The sailors are coming in, who knows how long they've been out to sea, They're looking for a good time. Where are the saloons, the bars, and the brothels? You're going to want to have them right there across from the wharf. Now, as I mentioned, we had tunnels that were built from the wharf over to these buildings, and they would smuggle in different goods. Well, not only were they smuggling things in, they were, quote-unquote, smuggling things out, too. And I shouldn't really say things. I should say humans. They were being shanghaied. This is another city very similar to the Shanghai Tunnels where men would be just grabbed off the street or if they were drunk in a bar, they may find themselves carried off and wake up aboard a ship where they would be made to work until they would either come back into port again or they would just be made to work on that ship for good. You can imagine the fear that some of these men would have, the anger, the scuffles that would go on. They're basically being kidnapped. And so I think some of that residual energy still is within these tunnels. So when people are in those tunnels, they get a weird feeling, a lot of negativity down there, and also they hear screams and cries of men. Since we have several buildings here that are all brothels, this has become Salem's Red Light District. The activity in the brothels and bars still can be heard there. So even though you're in the Witch's Brew Cafe... You might hear the voice of a sailor or a pirate walking about the restaurant. You can't see them, but you can hear them. Perhaps they're talking of a fight they got into or whatever they brought aboard their ship. 
or their plans for the future, where they're going to sail off to, some of their escapades down in the Caribbean. The Witch's Brew Cafe today has brunch, lunch, and dinner. You could check out their menu at witchesbrewcafe.com. The interior has wood-paneled walls. There's a fireplace with a stone mantle around it. And the ceiling is made out of tin tiles, so it's really cool. It gets really good reviews, so I've heard the food is really good there. And on Tuesday nights, they have tarot card readings. Now, right near there is Mercy Tavern. This establishment was formerly known as In a Pig's Eye, which had been open for 30 years. It was a real mainstay of the neighborhood, so a lot of people were sorry to see In a Pig's Eye go away. The Boston Eater paper reported on the transition to the new restaurant in April of 2017. The food at Mercy Tavern leans towards a gastropub style with both international and New England comfort food. There are small bites such as hand-cut prosciutto, roasted cauliflower, and roasted red pepper crostini, appetizers such as French onion soup and pork skewers, and entrees that range from spaghetti and meatballs to fried chicken, a Cuban sandwich, burgers, and pan-roasted steak. Mercy Tavern also has 12 draft lines and a cocktail list. The name Mercy was chosen because of the concept of mercy as a beautiful practice. Regardless of what name hangs on the shingle here, the one constant are the hauntings. Those that take place here are full-bodied apparitions of pirates that appear to be hanging out at a bar. Disembodied voices are heard and the sounds of struggling men being carried off through the tunnels is also heard. So that's a taste of the haunts that are along Derby Street. There's a bit of a troubling aspect to Salem. Some find it controversial that businesses here in Salem have been made on the backs of people who were wrongly accused and hanged. Of course, Witch's Brew Cafe clearly gets its name from that. If you've been to the city, you see that they have a witch on a broom is one of the logos for the city, and you see it on all of the city vehicles. They really embrace this. So you've got a couple of things going on here. First of all, you've got businesses that are built on what would be a dark moment in American history. And then you also have the wrong depiction of witches. We know that witches don't actually fly around on brooms. And those that practice Wicca are clearly quite different than the caricature of what is presented in Salem. And I often wonder if this is partly to blame for the hauntings in the city. Not just that the Salem witch trials happened and that people were wrongly accused and murdered, but could there be a negative type of energy there or these hauntings are going on simply for the fact that there's been almost a, I hate to put it this way, but a glorification for what happened there or building business on that. We did an episode on the Salem witch trials. So we talked a bit about Bridget Bishop in that episode, but I want to bring her up again here because she was the first woman to be hanged in the Salem witch trials. No one knows for sure when Bishop was born, but it's estimated to be around 1633. She and her husband moved to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1660. Her husband died four years later. She lived a life very different from the Puritans, which is probably what made her a target. She dressed in a way that they considered to be flamboyant. She would wear velvet vests and dresses that were more colorful. She and her second husband fought often and in a very public way, so they drew a lot of negative attention. In 1678, Bishop was brought into court for cursing at her husband. The exchange was described in the book Salem Village Witchcraft. Bridget, wife of Thomas Oliver, presented for calling her husband many opprobrious names as Old Rogue and Old Devil, 
on Lord's Day, was ordered to stand with her husband back-to-back on a lecture day in the public marketplace, both gagged for about an hour, with a paper fastened to each other's foreheads upon which their offense should be fairly written. Can you imagine living at a time where if you and your husband got into a cussing match with each other, that you would be brought to the center square and be placed back to back and gagged with these signs, not just hung around your neck, but put on your forehead. Clearly, humiliation was how they wanted to correct this, but it didn't correct anything. These two would continue to fight like cats and dogs and curse at each other constantly. After her second husband passed, rumors started flying. Bishop's stepchildren accused her of causing their father's death by bewitching him. Nothing came from that, and Bishop married her third husband. They lived in downtown Salem, where she owned an apple orchard. Bridget Bishop was arrested on charges of witchcraft on April 18, 1692. She was accused by Mercy Lewis, Abigail Williams, Elizabeth Hubbard, and Ann Putnam Jr. The next day, she was examined by Judge John Hawthorne and Judge Jonathan Corwin. Here are some of the exchanges. Hawthorne, they say you bewitched your first husband to death. And she said, if it please your worship, I know nothing of it. She shake her head and the afflicted were tortured. The like again upon the motion of her head. Then there's a witness, Braybrook, affirmed that she told him today that she had been accounted a witch these 10 years, but she was no witch. The devil cannot hurt her. Bishop again said, I am no witch. Hawthorne said, why if you have not wrote in the book, yet tell me how far you've gone Have you not to do with familiar spirits? Bishop says, I have no familiarity with the devil. Hawthorne says, how is it then that your appearance doth hurt these? Bishop says, I am innocent. Hawthorne continues, why you seem to act witchcraft before us by the motion of your body, which seems to have influence upon the afflicted. And this is when I believe the girls are throwing themselves on the ground and writhing. She says, I know nothing of it. I am innocent to a witch. I know not what a witch is. Hawthorne, how do you know then that you are not a witch? Bishop says, I do not know what you say. Hawthorne, how can you know you are no witch and yet not know what a witch is? Bishop, I'm clear. If I were any such person, you should know it. Hawthorne said, you may threaten, but you can do no more than you are permitted. And Bishop finishes off by saying, I am innocent of a witch. You have to love this reasoning. They're saying, are you a witch? And she says, no, I'm not. And then when they ask her what a witch is and she doesn't know, well, then how can you say you're not a witch if you don't know what that is? Well, how would she know she is a witch if she doesn't know what it is either? It's one of those questions that you can't answer. If you don't know what a witch is, how can you say yes or no? So how does that make you guilty? Because you don't know. But I love what she had to say. I'm clear if I were any such person, you should know it. And he definitely took that as a threat. And clearly, if she was able to bewitch these young girls, why would she not be able to bewitch everyone in that courtroom? That's one of the things. There was so much when it came to these trials of this illogical thinking. If these women who they accused of witchcraft and some of the men as well were these powerful witches that could curse and do all these things to people, why in the world weren't they just doing it right then? There was a lot of evidence provided, some of which included a neighbor claiming she had sent a talking deformed monkey to torment him. Yes, I did just say that a talking deformed monkey was evidence to this court. (laughs) I mean, Bishop's the witch, right? But the neighbor who claims this is perfectly fine? I don't know. Maybe you better check what he's been drinking. An examination found unnatural growths on her body. 
I have heard that what one of those unnatural growths was, was a third nipple on her chest. Now, more than likely, there was no such thing. But even if there was, that's a medical condition. That's not a mark of the devil. Bishop was found guilty of witchcraft on June 8, 1692, and hanged two days later. Since then, her spirit seems to be haunting many locations in Salem. And that spirit is said to be malevolent. And you can imagine she's probably angry. The main location that she's seen is where her apple orchard once stood, and I've been in that area. Uh, Part of it is actually a parking lot today. And they claim that the Hawthorne Hotel, which is nearby, is also haunted by her, that she walks around the hallways there. But that's probably an erroneous location. And the real spot is the Lyceum Building, home for Turner's Seafood Restaurant. The scent of baked apples clings to the air where her spirit roams. And they say when you're walking around in this parking lot that you do smell baked apples. This location is a couple blocks up from Derby Street. So if you are on Derby Street, you can head on up to where Turner Seafood Restaurant is and possibly run across the spirit of Bridget Bishop. If Bishop still walks around in the afterlife, it's probably not on Derby Street. But because of what happened starting with her, The guilt, fear, anger, and sorrow that permeated the witch trials still continues on in Salem. And to make light of it might be why hauntings continue and spirits seem to be at unrest. Is Derby Street in Salem haunted along with all of these various locations there? That is for you to decide. Well, I definitely want to get back to Salem again one day. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historygoesbump.com. And if you would like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And I did get a couple of emails. One of them was from Mona saying hello from Germany, which was very cool. I love to hear about you guys that are listening in other countries. I just want to thank you, Mona, for writing and letting me know how much you are enjoying the history and the ghost stories mixed together. Then I told her, let me know if you find out about some haunted locations in Germany so that I can uh, focus a little bit more over there. I got an email from Toby in regards to the Dover Castle episode. He said, haven't written in a while, but he said he wanted to chime in since he'd been there himself some time ago. He was there and toured both in the late 1990s, not too long after the tunnels were first opened to the public. They'd been sealed under the Official Secrets Act for a 50-year period following World War II, and all of the original furnishings were left in place when the war ended. Kitchen facilities, telephone operator boards, desks, chairs, everything. The tour of the tunnels, at least at that point haven't been back since, was designed as though you were a wounded soldier being brought into the hospital within the tunnels. You would hear doctors and nurses talking to you and about you through hidden speakers. There were piped-in sound effects of an air raid going on above you at surface level, and every now and then the lights would briefly go out following a nearby explosion. That's pretty cool. Very immersive. It was a really immersive experience and very effective. I don't know if they piped in odors as well or if they were just residual, but in the hospital unit there was an aroma of disinfectant, and around the mess hall and kitchens you could smell some sort of food as you passed through. The lowest two levels of the tunnel were still under the Official Secrets Act for some time. They were added sometime in the 1950s and were built to be the emergency broadcast location for the BBC and emergency housing for the royal family in the event of a nuclear war. This is probably why photos in the tunnels are prohibited. The castle above was pretty hollow when we were there, except it then housed a special exhibit on the real queue from the James Bond movies, displaying all the secret agent gadgets, hidden cameras, weapons, etc. the real guy had devised and used during his career. 
was a bizarre place to come across, but fascinating to see. Then he said, since then, they have redone the interior. Lots of it is well documented by this Time Team episode, and he gave me a link on YouTube. So that was very cool to hear that. And a listener named Rick Kennett shared with me that on a recent episode of Tales to Terrify, a story that he co-wrote was given a dramatic reading on there. It's really cool. And it features Rookwood Necropolis, which has been in one of the episodes that I've done as well. This was down in Sydney. I believe it is the largest cemetery in the Southern Hemisphere, something like that, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, I got a chance to listen today to that uh, Rookwood story on Tales to Terrify, and it was very good. So I encourage you to check out that podcast and get a listen to that. And then Megan wrote in the Spooktacular crew, I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation as to what's happening, but I'm creeped out right now. Currently sitting in den, nursing my baby, and the ceiling fan is now twice come on for a few minutes, then stop suddenly. Switch is in off position, and we're the only ones home. Also last night, when I checked on my son in his crib and came back out into the dark den, a table lamp on the far side of the room suddenly came on. I should mention we're renting a hundred-year-old house. Again, I'm sure there's a logical explanation, but I'm totally creeped out. So a lot of us commented on that. Obviously, a hundred-year-old house is going to have some weird electrical stuff possibly going on, but I would think they would have updated it at some point. But nonetheless, I said, wouldn't it be cool if that was a family member checking in on the new baby? We have some reviews to share from Apple Podcasts, and this is it. This will be the last of the reviews that I'm reading. I still would appreciate you guys leaving them wherever you listen to the podcast to let other people know that you are enjoying it. First up, we have Nestor Girl, Love the History and the Bumps, five stars. My family and I discovered your podcast while we were driving from South Carolina to our new home in southern Indiana, New Albany, the home of the Culbertson Mansion. My sons and I listen to you almost every day now. We love the spooky mixed with our great love of history. I'm homesick for South Carolina, so if you're looking for a topic, perhaps, and I don't know if they say it, Beaufort or Beaufort in South Carolina. I know North Carolina says it the opposite way. I can't remember which was which. It has some ghost stories for you. Old Sheldon's Churchyard is a great example. Keep up the great work. Well, a churchyard sounds like a cemetery, so I will add that for our next Haunted Cemeteries episode. Mandy Shue, History and Mystery, five stars. I discovered this podcast through Hillbilly Horror Stories. After listening to an interview that Diane and Denise did, I was not disappointed in hopping over here and checking the show out. I love it. I was a little disappointed that Denise is no longer a part of the show, but don't worry. The show is still wonderful anyway. I look forward to more episodes. Well, thank you, Mandy. D. Kerr, RN, History Goes Bump, five stars. Love, love, love this program. Started listening after my son introduced me to the show. Love the mixture of history and the spooky stories. You should consider doing a show about the Warm Springs Institute in Georgia. Spookiest place I've ever spent time in. All right, added to the list. And Storm Rose, love, 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 five stars, one of my favorite podcasts. Heard about it while Diane was on the most notorious podcast. Now I'm hooked. You helped me get through the drudgery of sitting in my cubicle at work. Started from the beginning, so I have a ways to go before I get caught up, but enjoying every single episode. I'd be lost without you. Keep up the amazing work, and thank you for helping me keep my sanity while at work. LOL. P.S. You should maybe check out Glensheen Mansion in Duluth, Minnesota, or also Noteming Sanatorium in Duluth. All right. And thank you to Eric Ebu. Nothing bad. Five stars. Can't find anything bad to say about this podcast. So five stars. All right. Thank you to all of you who have left reviews. I have greatly appreciated that. Want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers.
Dispatches from the Grave Digger. First, I want to thank Aaron Peel for upping your support. You will be moved underneath a marble headstone. Then we want to welcome into the cemetery, Trisha Cohen, who is going to be getting an obelisk headstone. Mort is quickly preparing chest tombs for Maria Plover, Sherry Bullock, and welcome back to Dead Blackburn. And then Michelle Arrington, you are going to be getting a garden crypt. It's all ladies this time around, so thank you so much, ladies, for your support of the show. It is greatly appreciated. All right, Mort, I know you have some more eulogies to share. Spotlight's on you. Eulogies by Mort Bonnie Galtney had been giving since 2017. Of haunted places she was quite keen. She was a fan of the Silver Queen Cafe in Maryland. For her I have a great memorial planned. This little ditty is for Edel Hanover. I would like to dance a jig with her. She had lived in a place far away. We better dance before she starts to decay. Cassia Boaz liked scares that make you quake. She's here in the cemetery for a swinging wake. She had lived in the state of Oklahoma. Dying young means she won't get glaucoma. Chris Key liked cemeteries, so she'll be at home. When I place her down in this catacomb, I've heard that she was pretty crafty. Maybe she'll create something to make it less drafty. Tom Barney had the Viking as a nickname. Now that he's passed, it's a real shame. He had lived in the city of Jacksonville. Do you think this big monument is overkill? Karen Wickham liked to chase after a ghost. She was a great multi-podcast host. To honor her service as an e-honors. I'll drive her body around in an ambulance hearse. Christy Bacon was a connoisseur of craft beer. And she could throw back a whiskey, oh dear. She was a lady full of fun. And I bet ghosts she could outrun. Shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. <laughs> 